So we are doing the Big Ten. This is what, this is what our, these ten weeks are about. And last week, um, we started with five because it was a student-specific Sunday. And now we're going back to um, commandment number one. When you think about the Ten Commandments and you talk about, you say the word law, I get nervous. I get nervous what you think when I say law. Because the, all the connotations, right, of, of law mean, hell, it's going to look this way. And God's law is a hammer, essentially. God's law is a hammer, and it's supposed to conform us. That's, when we read the Ten Commandments, it's like someone taking a hammer, and, and hey, that, that's, that's the context. It's, the Ten Commandments are, you better, you better shape up, or I'm going to ship you out. And this is Exodus 20, and um, you know, God, on Mount Sinai, had been with Moses, and he gives a one-verse preface before what we're looking at today, um, and that is this from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, this is the sentence he says right before the first commandment. This is supposed to give context for understanding the Ten Commandments because I learned all kinds of songs memorizing it, but he says to you and to me, before I get nervous, you know, he's like, before you read these big ten, before Charlton Heston reads the ten on the, you know, on the tablets, here's, here's what I want you to do. I am the Lord you God, your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Here's what we got to remember. We got to remember that the grace, right, the grace of the Red Sea is before the Ten Commandments. You have to understand that grace is first. God setting us free is the first thing that better come to our mind when we think about the story of redemption. It's got to be, because that's the thing that defined the Israelites. Hey, the grace of the Red Sea, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea, you have to remember that, right? The grace of the Red Sea comes before the law. If you're not thinking about the grace of the Red Sea, this series could mess you up, because you're thinking, okay, what are the big 10? I'm going to go through them. I got to get them right. And they're beautiful. But, you know, the commandment, you shall have no, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. But before you hear that first commandment, remember, I brought you out, out of grace, and I love you. And it was nothing that you did. You couldn't, they didn't even know what the commandments were before the Red Sea happened. And God gave them grace. They had no idea what to do, and he gave them the grace of the Red Sea. So, in your own life, is this a dynamic? Does grace come before law in your life? When you think about the way in which, I mean, if God were, one of my professors used to say, this is a, probably a pretty good idea of what your theology is. If you imagine God uh, looking at you, what would his facial expression be? That would probably tell you a lot about you. What do you think God's facial expression, if it was just you and him in a room and you walk in and he knows everything about your life, what do you think it would be? My professor used to say, that will tell, tell you a lot, right, about your own theology. What's God's, what's God's ex, uh, expression? Because he says this, he says, you shall have uh, no other gods before me. Grace comes before law, but the first law is essentially this. The first principle that we have to understand is this idea that God, he despises competition for your heart. He hates competing against something else. 
He is a jealous God, and he cannot stand competing with something else. That's essentially what the first commandment is. is he, he hates, right? He hates things that compete for your, um, for your attention and for your love. You shall have no other gods before me, do you? Right? Let's just be very plain here. Do you have other gods before Jehovah Jireh, before Jesus Christ? before the Holy Ghost. Do you have other gods? That's, that's what this, does he have competition for your heart? Isn't it amazing how fast things can begin to compete? So it was, it was kind of cool. I don't know if you guys know Chris and Robin Labruzzo, but I got to do this. Um, it was in the Pinellas County Courthouse and it was in their big courtroom and um, it was on the fourth floor and it was this, it's called an investiture. Uh, I think that's right, investiture. That's when a dude becomes a judge, right? So Chris became a judge. How cool is that? And so he goes, I need you to pray. I need you to say a prayer of invocation to start out this service. I didn't know what the deal was, but he just said, be there, whatever. I got in there, and, um, and, I, and I felt nervous. <laughs> I promise you I've never been in a court, courtroom before. I promise. It's okay. <laughs> um, but I was there, and then the chief judge came out, and there was all these dignitaries sitting on the left, and I'm sitting you know, I was on the other side of that swinging door. I was on the, you know, lawyer side right behind Chris. And all of a sudden, he kind of, you know, the, the bailiff comes out and she says like, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, whatever. And, I'm, and I got really nervous then because it felt very, very formal. And, I, and, and I, Chris didn't warn me about this and we had words after first service. Um, but I thought, okay, uh, and, and I was the first thing. I was the first prayer, Right? And so the chief justice came out, and she said something, and I just tried to stay quiet and, you know, mind my, you know, P's and Q's. And then all of a sudden, I'm not lying, about 30 judges walked out in black robes and sat in three rows. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm going to have to walk up here. And there was a bunch of people there, too. And you just felt the weight of that, right? The weight of that, and I was like, okay. So I got up there, and I was sure that my prayer was judged. That's <laughs> a terrible joke. I was nervous, but I got through it. And I was like, okay, that was all right. I felt like it was okay. That was a decent, that was, that was okay. I mean, it wasn't awesome, but it was all right. Um, and then it was Chris, and he had his buddy, Fred, who was also becoming a judge. Well, Fred, uh, Fred is Jewish, and so there was a rabbi right there, right? And so the rabbi had to give the benediction. So the rabbi, and I kind of, I picked up, and he hung up, right, to the Lord. And uh, so... So, you know, he's there, and um, it was this unbelievable service, and it felt real weighty. And then the rabbi walks up, and he was awesome, <laughs> right? So he just starts saying his thing, and he goes into a prayer. And in the prayer, he starts speaking in Hebrew. And I, why in my mind, why, when we're praying, why in my mind, I'm a pastor, I'm the other pastor, rabbi, why am I thinking, oh, that's good. That is good. Oh, he beat me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's, I mean, I was like maybe a 6.5. That's a solid nine prayer right there. I mean, that's a straight up nine. You know, and I, I'm thinking about this. This is Friday afternoon. I'm thinking about this, uh, you know, this sermon as I'm kind of looking at it. And I think, yeah, there it is, right? There's that competition, right? Why did he matter? I mean, what, what is that? What is that inside of me? What is that, pride? 
Does it need to be seen a certain way? And, it, and, you know, we're in a service and, hey, but I could feel it in my heart. Like, oh, man, I should have, like, maybe referenced something in the scriptures. I should have had, like, some kind of memorized cool little ditty. <laughs> no, I didn't. Just, just my regular prayer. I, he beat me. All right, see you guys, you know. And you kind of go down and I'm like, what am I doing? What is, what is going on? And you could tell, hey, it was to be seen a certain way, to be, to be esteemed. Why do you need that? Why would that compete for the affection that God has for you? Why would you give that to other people and need them to say or need for you to have peace of mind? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Where are you? What competes for your heart? He wants to talk to you this morning. He wants to talk to me this morning. And thinking about this particular um, pass, or this particular verse and this particular commandment, I thought of two, two passages. The first one we're going to look at is um, Jesus. And Jesus is talking to a young man. And this is a pretty famous passage from Mark 10. It's, three, it's referenced in three different, uh, three different Gospels. But thinking about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Here's Jesus. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to either to, to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus, who could obviously see him, like really see him, says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This interaction here with Jesus... Um, this young man comes to him and he kind of says, I think I've got this problem. It almost feels like I've got this academic problem, right? I'm missing something in my life. Um, I don't know why I feel like there's something wrong. Um, maybe it's something I don't understand, right? You kind of sense this. It's, is, is, is it some project I ought to do? Or is it some rule that I'm breaking this guy's thinking? I don't know. What, what is it? Um, and he says, I'm, there's something I'm missing in my thinking. And Jesus won't have anything to do with it, if you see his response. He won't have anything to do with that. Because you know the questions that we hear, right? The questions that people say, here's my, people say things like, my real problem with Christianity is I don't see how a God of love could punish people, right? My real problem with Christianity is just that I don't like it so exclusive. It's so exclusive. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's my problem. Or, um, my real problem is the whole idea of miracles. I just can't believe, as a modern person, as an enlightened person, in miracles, in the supernatural. I cannot do that. Or maybe even some of you, if you want to take it one step less than that, you might just say, my real problem is that I have a bad habit, right? And I can't break it. Or I'm something I'm caught in, I don't know how to, how to give it up, right? 
Jesus says, there's all smoke screens. They're not. This is not what you're talking about, right? I mean, when you, when you look uh, at the way Jesus responds to him, um, there is nobody else in the Bible where Jesus asks them to what? No one. In, anywhere else in the scriptures, does Jesus say, hey, um, I want you to sell everything. Give everything away. He doesn't ask, even Zacchaeus, he doesn't ask that. This is, I mean, this is, this is a dramatic, drastic measure. It's almost like a, an intervention that you might see on television when someone's an alcoholic saying, hey, we're going to have an intervention right here. That's exactly what Jesus is doing because he says to me and to you, he says this, underneath all of your objections, right, and your complaints, um, the difficulty that you really have is never the difficulty you think you have at first. You think this is it? No, no, no. It's not it at all. I mean, you're talking about the second layer, and I'm, and I'm going to just go to the seventh or the eighth or the ninth, right? That, and, and you know, as a Christian, that when you come to know Christ and you understand Christianity, as you get into it, you realize, oh my goodness, there's so much more. Um, there's so much more that I'm to become. It's so much greater than I ever thought. And I'm so much more blessed than I ever thought imaginable. Like, it, it, this requires so much more than I ever thought. When I first became a Christian, oh my goodness, I didn't think any of this. And I realized, he wants my whole life. But then you realize, on that track is this other track that you receive grace and you understand blessing more than you ever, ever had. So Jesus says to, to me and to you, he says, look, underneath it all, there's a power struggle that you have, rich young ruler. And you know what it's over? You know what's over with me? My dreams. I mean, my dreams. What do I want my life to look like? If you were to write down what you want for your life on a three by five card, this is my perfect life. This is my dream life. Here's what God says. Give me that card. Give me that card. Are you willing to give me that card? That's what I want from you, right? Jesus is saying, I want your dreams. Will you give your dream up for me? Always this leads back to the sound of music with Julie Andrews, right? Obviously. You ever remember in the movie The Sound of Music where Julie Andrews is a nun and she thinks she's going to be single her whole life and she falls in love with this captain who's got all these kids. And there's this scene where she is, she is singing to him, right? And she says, um, but somewhere in my wicked and miserable past, uh, there must have been a moment of truth. Because somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. But she's saying, I must have done something good or you wouldn't be here. I am living my dream. And if Jesus was in that movie, he'd hit stop awkwardly in the middle of that song and say, hey, we're going to stop this song right here. Floorline Maria. (laughs) Will you give me this? This is your dream. You thought you were going to be a nun your whole life. You thought you were just going to be this kind of, kind of this, this maid, glorified Alice from the Brady Bunch, right? No, no, I, I, want it. I want your dream. Will you give it to me? That general, this new life you never thought, you, will you give it to me? And he asked you and he asked me that. He says, look, I want the most important thing in your life. I want that through which you dream. Can I have that? Can he have that from you? That's what God wants. And he's looking, right? And he's looking at this rich young guy. He's looking at me. 
and then you realize that, okay, the point um, is that anything that I've decided will give me life and power and joy without God, what will it do? It will become a monster in your life. Money, he's saying, will become a monster, rich young ruler. So we have to do surgery, and it's going to hurt. There's a cancer, and we got to go in right now. We got to, you know, we got to take all of that out because you, you don't realize this, but this will destroy you. I mean, think about money today. Just, just money. What does that do? Jesus says, surrender your dreams because he says to me and to you, money can become a monster. Think about it spiritually. How does, how does money just begin to destroy you? Think how much you desire money. How, much have you walked, how many times have you walked into a room and it's like, oh, that guy makes a lot, or she makes a lot, or they've done this, and all of a sudden, desire turns into envy. And next thing you know, your whole interactions are ruined. Because here's what you think about, money. And he saw it. The point is money. And you know what Jesus is saying to me and to you? You can ultimately you can um, kill yourself. When you have money, when you get some money, it can feel like power, right? It can feel like you have control of your life. And when we feel like we're in control, we feel like people won't push us around anymore. People, my dad won't look down at me when I have money. When he finally comes to my new house and he sees what I've done, he's not going to talk to me like that anymore. I will have some control or I will have some uh, power. If you don't have it, you're filled with anxiety. It could fill you with bitterness towards other people who have it. It's money that makes people worry all the time. It'll make you work way too hard. It will destroy you. Jesus is looking into this, um, into this guy's heart. I mean, so... I don't know if you remember the rise of talk shows where there's a bunch of conflict. kind of happened, I remember it happened kind of the late 80s, early 90s. And, of course, the, the, the show that people think of is a show, Jerry, the Jerry Springer Show. I remember reading an article about the executives of the Jerry Springer Show. And you know what they said? Hey, they, they said, you know, it's, it's amazing. If you put two people in a room with some explosive, uh, some kind of explosive conflict... People watch it, right? I mean, it's amazing. That's all we have to do now, we've realized, is put two people in a room that are so angry that they might actually go after each other physically. And you know what? The ratings go through the roof. People, what was he saying? People buy it. He said, I mean, functionally, he said, yeah, it's bad, but it makes us money, right? Because I think when you are rich, and many of us are rich, 92% of the world does not own a car, right? Okay. When we have money, we feel like, okay, you know what? I have arrived. When you feel like you're rich, you begin to feel like you're smart. That you will now feel like the, 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 the gut that you have, you're going to trust it in ways that maybe you should never and what Jesus says to you and to me, he goes, look, I need you to get rid of that monster inside of you. You have to put me first. And that's the only way, Jesus says, you will ever get treasures in heaven. It's the only way. If you want treasures in heaven, you've got to slay this monster. Because you know what? He says to this young man, you can have the biggest house in South Tampa. You can have the most extravagant house in Avila. 
You can have the biggest boat there on the marina there. Um, you can have the biggest boat during Gasparilla. But you know what? It's nothing compared to my forgiveness, pal. You can, you know, be uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And God would look, Jesus would look at him and say, you have nothing compared to my righteousness. You have nothing compared to being an adopted son in my house. It's nothing compared, Steve Jobs, to what I can give you. And we don't think like that. And so, referencing this verse, what do we know about these things that you have and that I have is thieves can steal it. Moth and rust can corrupt it. But Jesus says to you and to me, what I have for you is permanent. What I have for you um, is permanent. If you don't see that I alone am good, um, if you rely on me, ultimately, um, if you rely on me, he says, and become good in me, you will be rich in ways you never thought or you never imagined. You will see that I am your treasure, that I am your righteousness, that I am your record. That's what Jesus is trying to tell this guy. But you know what? I'm thankful for this guy's response because he wasn't playing any games. He just knew he couldn't do it. He knew it. I was like, I don't have it. Money is my God. If I'm not wealthy, I'm nothing. So I'm just going to bow my head. I'm going to back out of the room. And I'm going to go because I can't do this. I'm, I'm thankful that we saw that. He was true to what he was. This guy was not changed. He could not. He was chained to money. Next story. Next story is about a guy all the way in the back of, of the beginning of the Bible named Abram. I want to read to you a few passages just from the story of Abram. Remember Abram? His name changed to Abraham. He was a nobody, literally a nobody. Didn't, have, didn't do anything to have a family line, didn't have anything. And God just calls him, just picks him and says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, here's the thing. Um, How are you going to do that, God? Because um, I don't have... Um, we can't have kids. And my wife really wants to have kids, right? Really, really wants to have kids because we want to be in a family. We want to have a family. Family matters. And so what did the Lord do? Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. That name means, we know it means um, laughter. Um, And when you think about this, Abraham was a nobody, and then you know what he got? He got the covenantal blessing, the land, the seed, and the blessing. He got it. And he, he knew he did nothing to do to earn it. He knew he did nothing to get the favor of God. Now, that was his context, right? And... He was really old and he didn't have a son. Um, He did not have kids. And here's what we know is before um, she becomes pregnant, um, before Sarah becomes pregnant, we know what happened. We know that um, Sarah said to Abram, look, will you please go have sex with my uh, maidservant Hagar? And from Hagar came Ishmael. That wasn't of God because they weren't trusting God. But God said, no, no, I'm going to bless you no matter what. No matter how unfaithful you are, I will bless you because I want you to feel my grace and my love. Let's go to the next slide. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised 
circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. What they wanted was to have a kid. God gave them a kid. But before any of that came, blessing came to them. The, 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 the grace and the favor of God came to them, and it changed Abram, right? Do you remember the moment when you were changed? Do you remember the moment when you, were, when you received salvation from the Lord? As you see a man like this, as you see Abraham like this, God is saying to you and to me, he's saying, remember, the point is the giver. The point isn't the gift. The giver, God is the point. Isaac's not the point, right? God owns everything in the world. The scripture says the earth is his and everything in it. It's all his. So whatever you have theologically, you don't have anything and I don't have anything. We lease or rent everything. Nothing we have is permanent, right? Nothing. And so here is Abraham because the point is to glorify God. And here is a, a wife who just wants a kid and a husband who wants a kid with his wife. And, you know, in these moments, God wants to test us. And he wants to know, okay, if I give you that job that you're praying for, if I give you that wife that you're praying for, or that husband, or that child, or whatever it is, is that going to be the point? Is that the point? Is the gift the point? Or is the giver the point? And so in Genesis 22, we know, unbelievably, God said, he tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. Stop there for a second. Are you kidding me? You've waited, you've prayed. The point of your life you feel like is to be a father or the point of your life is to be a mother. It's not. The point of your life is to be a follower of Jesus. If that happens, that's beautiful. But that's not the point. And God wants to make sure this morning for you and for me, is, is that the point for you? Is your money the point? Are your kids the point? Is your family salvation? Is that nirvana? Is that it? And here is a guy that has been changed. He's not perfect. But you know what? Sacrifice him. Early the next morning he gets up. So we do it. Because he's worshiping the what? He's worshiping the giver and not the gift. Are you this free? Because that's a free man right there. That is a free man. We talk about free. It's for freedom that Jesus came. He is free from anything worldly, anything that, you know, that is of this world. And, and he says, look, to the rich young ruler, you can have that freedom. There's chains on you that you don't even know. And I know you have chains in this room right now um, that are holding you way back. And all you do is think and, get, and worry about your family. You spend all day worrying and you don't live and you survive. And he's like, well, you, you're not made that. That's the monster I'm trying to get out of you. He's trying to say that to the rich young ruler. If you don't have money, you're nothing, pal. You are, you are enchained to this. But Abraham, what does he do? He gets up and loads his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Next slide. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Imagine that. He takes a, like a band of people with him. Now he says to his servant, stay here with the donkey. Why? And the boy, go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. 
Can you imagine what Isaac's thinking? Hey, Dad, what are we doing? Why are we leaving our boys here? We're just going to do this by ourselves? I mean, like, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. I mean, who could ever do this? Who could ever obey the Lord and trust the Lord? This man had been taken from his you know, spot, Ur of the Chaldeans. He left everything because he trusted in the blessing of God. That was the formative thing. Not even his son is the formative thing in his life. And he puts the wood on his son. My son's not the point. The, the voice of God is the point to glorify him. And I'm going to take this knife. Let's go to the next slide. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I mean, how, how does this even happen? And, and who in their right mind could ever do this? God wants to know this. He wants to know, um, he wants to tear down anyone who gets in the way. He wants to destroy any competitor that he has to fight for your heart. If that means money, if that means your family, if that means a certain job, he, he wants you to lose that job, right? He, he wants you to, uh, hey, you, you can't, you, you're way too involved in your kid's life. You don't even think about me. The point is them, or the point is your wife, or the point is your husband, or the point is whatever. Whatever you could fill in here. And as you think, um, as you think about this whole story, my, my question is, and we know, that God stops him and they find a ram and they kill it. And how do you get any type of leverage to do this? And I think the only place you can come is to 1 John 4. This is how, this is the only place that we can get leverage to kill money and to kill and to, to actually have days where we're not worried. Because what? There is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. How? He took his son, his firstborn son, and he put it on the altar. And he actually killed his firstborn son. And he did it first. And if he did it first, right, and you have to sacrifice your son or your anxiety of your family, and, and if, if you know he did it first, and he was willing to give everything to you, you know what, you can do that. You can be free from this anxiety. Many of us feel like we're just thinking about the next thing. And okay, what if we don't get it right? What's that going to do to the dynamics? What's this going to do to the family? And you're not living freely. What if you lived in this? What if you talked about this with your spouse, with your husband or, or, or your wife? What if you realize, you know what, babe? Because Christ paid the ransom for my salvation, I, I'm free from money. He's already paid it. If he paid it, I'm going to give all my money back to him. Yeah, we'll, we'll sell everything. Sure. What's the big deal? He paid for my ransom. Why wouldn't I give all my money back? Because he paid to set me free. He, what did he do? He was willing to sacrifice his own son so that I can be with him forever. Why shouldn't we be willing to give away, if you will, our family so that we don't worship it? That doesn't mean you can't re-understand it as a gift, but I think... I mean, think of the two things that get in the way. 
to good, but not ultimate things. Money, right, and kids or family. I think, when I think about the idols in my own heart, these are two big ones. Man, if it's not what, you know, our household is bringing in, it's, oh my goodness, how's the church doing, right? And that can define you and bills and college and future retirement, and I live for that. Why? You're, you're free, Frank. It's been paid for you. Who cares, man? You're free from money. You are free from your son or your daughter. What if they don't love you? You're still going to be together with God. What if they, what if they if, if, you know, if things get really hairy? You're still free. You're free. You are, you are absolutely free. Now, that doesn't say to not appreciate the gift, but if, if it's all about the gift and not the giver, then we have got it wrong. So where are you this morning, right? Because he says to you, ironically, when he talks about treasure in heaven, you know, you know the way Jesus sees you? Part of what he's trying to say here to this, um, to this guy is, um, you know, um, when your name is written in heaven, when, you're, when we're there together, you know what? You're the treasure of my eyes, God says, essentially. You, don't, you think I'm the treasure, and there's a sense, but there's a whole another sense in which you're the treasure. You're the treasure of God's eye. Treasures in heaven, that's right. You being there for God the Father who called you and changed you, that's what you are. You are his treasure in heaven. I mean, that's what the scriptures say. And so as we we think about the first commandment, you shall have what? You shall have no other gods before me. What are they? What are they? What are the gods before? Who competes the most for your heart? God despises that. He doesn't want to compete. He wants to be number one. And Israel will be set free if they're number one. And they don't realize it. They think they're going to live this life of bondage or, or just fear. He says, no, you will be free. Freedom begins with obeying and, and walking towards uh, having no other gods before me. As we think about this, um, we're going to come uh, to the grace of the Red Sea through the Lord's Supper, right? The grace of the Red Sea, which started with the Passover, Right? The Passover was the 10th plague, and they were freed. The Passover meal in the New Testament became the Lord's Supper. God said, we're not going to, Jesus said, we're not going to celebrate Passover anymore because you have now been officially all passed over. That will never have to happen again. Now we're going to institute the Lord's Supper. And it's that grace that we hear and that grace that we eat that should drive us to what? Want to obey, to want to knock down these idols. Um, And so let's pray and ask that God would do that. And then um, Morgan is going to lead us Um, through uh, the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank you for the grace of the Red Sea, and we thank you for the the law of Mount Sinai. God, this first commandment to have no other gods, it feels so general and so big, but if we just take it in pieces and we understand, okay, what are two big ones? We know money is, is there for all of us, and we know our kids or our family in whatever way. And you want it in its right priority. You want to be number one. So would we be willing to give away all our money? Would, be, would we be willing for you and your glory to sacrifice our kids? Please, God, help us to pass this test. Because if we do, Father, we know that we're growing and we're becoming more like you. Thank you for your word and how it reads us and changes us in your name. Amen.